The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 3, Saturday, July 22nd, 2023. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the third digest of this third volume covering Monday, July 17th through Friday, July 21st, 2023. Musical Monday. So what is Musical Monday? Well, in the first year of the Daily Rios, I used to do a topic entitled Musical Monday, which was a celebration at that time in 2012 of 25 years of doing theater. So every Musical Monday episode, uh, I would go through my modest theater resume, show by show, talk about the show, talk about the cast, talk about facts that might interest you, the listeners, memories of my own production. And it was all meant to be one other topic that I could do here on The Daily Rios that wasn't comics, and that wasn't geek-related. And at the time, uh, as I mentioned, it was 2012, and I started with a look at uh, the very first show, the very first official show that I did in junior high school, which was Once Upon a Mattress, which was in 1987. So that's where you get the 25 years, 1987 to 2012. Musical Monday is also the segment topic that is probably the most requested whenever I get feedback from you, the listeners. Now, I've done other Musical Mondays, which were more or less reviews of, say, a musical that was on TV or uh, maybe something that I that I saw, but the, the real Musical Monday was this kind of journey through my resume. So as I mentioned, I started with Once Upon a Mattress, I went to Little Mary Sunshine, and then Chicago, Dames at Sea, South Pacific, and Bye Bye Birdie, which was my first community theater production in 1989. So uh, I'm looking at school shows, although I'm done with those, community theater, uh, I guess university productions, and then I'll eventually, some you know, time down the road, We'll get to regional theater, professional theater, choreographing, directing, etc., etc. It's all on the table. So as I mentioned, it used to be a popular episode topic. It is often requested. So here we go. We're going to go back to the true Musical Monday for this first segment in this week's Digest. And we're going to kick things off with the next show on my resume list entitled Leader of the Pack. That was the music that kicked off this digest, so let's go into some background information. Leader of the Pack was a 1984 jukebox musical based on the life and music of Ellie Greenwich, a singer-songwriter who created a bunch of popular doo-wop songs in the early to mid-1960s. The musical was based on a concept by Melanie Mint. The book was written by Anne Uh, and beats with additional material by Jack Hefner. The story goes through Ellie's life from growing up in Levittown, New York. She formed a girl group called the Jivettes with school friends. She would eventually meet her future writing partner and future husband, Jeff Barry, and they would go on to create many songs. 
uh, recognizable songs. They would break it big by writing songs for the Ronettes. They eventually had a breakup, and the show ends at that time in 1984 with the real-life Ellie Greenwich uh, talking about how, you know, through all of that, everything worked out in the end. Leader of the Pack had a brief off-Broadway run in 1984, followed by a perform uh, a Broadway run in 1985 that only lasted 120 performances. And it was during the preview for the Broadway run that the musical was cut down to be more of a, of a review with limited dialogue. The show at that time was directed and choreographed by Michael Peters, and it opened on April 8th, 1985 at the Ambassador Theater. So let's unpack a, a bunch of things based on all that background information. So first off, what is a jukebox musical? That is where the majority of the songs in a show are well-known popular music, uh, rather than original music, usually from a group, an individual singer, a composer. Now, they might create a new song for the show, but it's almost as if someone takes an album or a collection of songs and says, let's do something with that. Sometimes they're ter turned into full-blown musicals with a story and plot. Other times they are just musical reviews, such as Leader of the Pack with limited dialogue. And then you even get some shows, uh, some jukebox musicals that really just feel like they're almost like concerts. And, uh, you know, you barely get any sort of dialogue. There is this weird crossover where sometimes some people will list a movie that gets turned into a musical as a jukebox musical just because, like, say, for instance, Footloose. Most of that music was written for the movie by Kenny Loggins and others, uh, so then they'll call that a jukebox musical, but that's not, I don't really consider that. So here are some examples. From 2018, uh, there was a musical called Jagged Little Pill, based on the music in the album by Alanis Morissette. You had in 2015, On Your Feet, which was the life story, life story of Emilio and Gloria Estefan, 2009, a musical entitled American Idiot, based on the Green Day album of the same name, and probably the most popular in the most, uh, you know, past recent years, uh, Mamma Mia, based on the music of ABBA. Who is Ellie Greenwich? She was born in 1940. She wrote pop music that I know you're going to know, along with writing partner and husband Jeff Barry and Phil Spector. Yes, that Phil Spector and others. And uh, those songs include... As well as... And a few more that you might recognize. Go 
let's talk a little bit about Michael Peters, who was the director choreographer. Uh, he was a director choreographer uh, dancer. He was a co-choreographer for the original Dream Girls musical with Michael Bennett. You might know his work from two little music videos called Beat It and Thriller with someone called Michael Jackson. He is the rival gang leader in Beat It, dressed all in white. He also did the choreography for Pat Benatar's Love is a Battlefield videos for Lionel Richie, and apparently he helped Angela Bassett when she was playing Tina Turner in the movie What's Love Got to Do With It. In the cast of Leader of the Pack, you had young Ellie portrayed by Dinah Manoff, who, is, uh, who played Carol Weston, on Empty Nest, but also she was Marty in the Grease movie. The role of Jeffrey was played by Patrick Cassidy, son of Shirley Jones, half-brother of David Cassidy from the Partridge family, also the brother to Sean Cassidy, who I think was one of the Hardy Boys. Uh, let's see, Annie Golden and Darlene Love. They were in the cast, the original cast, and they were real-life friends of the real-life Ellie Greenwich, and they appeared as themselves in the musical. Annie Golden was the was in the original uh, Hair movie. You might also know her as Norma Romano on, on Orange is the New Black. And Darlene Love was the original 1960s recording artist of some of the songs in the musical, uh, she played Trish Murtaugh, the wife of Danny Glover's character in the four Lethal Weapon movies. And apparently, uh, River Deep Mountain High was intended for Darlene Love, but was reassigned to Tina Turner to sing. In the ensemble of Leader of the Pack, uh, an actress known as Jasmine Guy, who would eventually go on to play Whitley Gilbert in the television sitcom A Different World, starting in 1987. Uh, I didn't read a lot about like reviews or anything, but one review in the in the wiki called the show an embarrassment. And apparently the producers got into litigation with each other uh, that lasted longer than the Broadway show even ran. So my memories of Leader of the Pack, it is the seventh show that I was in. And it was the second community theater show I was in at the time. And it was a community theater named Genesius Theater. It was the first show I did at Genesius Theater. This was spring, summer of uh, 1989. It was between my junior and senior year in high school. I auditioned because I had heard about it. The production uh, team for the musical also did the high school musicals where I went to high school. So I heard about the musical. Some of the people in high school were trying out for it. And I believe one of the girls that uh, eventually was cast said something to me about like, you know, hinting that I probably wouldn't get it because maybe I wasn't quote unquote good enough or whatever. And that was all I needed to audition for it. And I got in and I think she was a little pissed that I got in, but hey, um, yeah, it's a big dance show, you know, that was totally in my favor and they needed young, energetic people. So, uh, you know, I guess I was 16 at the time. Yeah. And it was kind of a no brainer that I would get cast. I didn't know it at the time, 
but you know, Genesis Theater would go on to be uh, like my home away from home for many, many years, for at least 10 years after that. And I would do a bunch of shows with Genesis Theater and a bunch of events. And it was a, a really great time uh, in my life. It was a small black box type theater and it had a very small audience, but the intimate space is what made a show like Leader of the Pack successful because you could be right there in front of the audience and it had off in the wings it had a waiting area which was also like a scene shop and then downstairs we had dressing rooms and uh, this bar area where we would have cast parties so you're going to hear a lot more about this theater as i go on i don't remember much about the musical itself the one that we presented um you know i i imagine i met a lot of the people that I would eventually hang out with at Genesis Theater and at other theaters, they were older than me, um, many that I still talk to to this day. I did have uh, a duet, a dance duet with uh, another um, actor in the show for one of the love songs. And, you know, my weak little 16-year-old Puerto Rican body, I just had no strength for lifts, but I tried the best I could. Uh, but I can remember slow dancing with her, and I swear one night, I don't know, maybe we were getting into it, or she was getting into it, she kissed my neck, and she was older than me, but I was like, okay, did I imagine that, or did she really do that? I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I don't remember much about it. It was a lot of fun, but uh, I don't have strong memories of this musical, and I didn't pull out any of like my photo albums to see if I can remember some of the people in it. Now, one of the other strong memories I have about this show. So I said that this took place between my junior and senior year in high school. Well, the production team who, as I mentioned, did both the community theater and the high school musicals decided to do leader of the pack that very next spring for my senior year. And it was barely a year later. And I decided not to audition for it because I was like, why do I want to do it again? It's the same production team. It's the same show. Yeah, it's going to have a bigger cast because it's a high school musical and we had a bigger stage, but just, there just was something about it. I was like, I don't want to do it again. I was early on in my quote unquote theater career, only two years in two or three years in, I don't want to do the same show again, which is silly because, you know, I have since done several shows multiple times, but that at the time, nah, I didn't want to do it. It caused a little bit of strife with my music director more than my director. Uh, and I did wind up seeing it. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, maybe I should have done it. You know, my, the, the girl who played Ellie was, was a friend of mine and she was cute. And there were some other, you know, fun people in the cast and I probably would have had a, a good time, but it wasn't like I stopped doing theater. I was still doing theater all throughout. You know, I, I sort of felt like, okay, if I don't do this, it doesn't really matter because I'm going to keep doing theater, you know? So it's a show that's not done often, although I feel like it's perfect for that high school community theater level. It's not very expensive. You can do a small ensemble. You could do a big ensemble. Uh, it's very energetic. The audiences are going to love it, right? If you got a whole bunch of boomers out there because they're going to know the music and it's catchy and it's 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 not like... It's not a hilarious show, but there's some humor to it. Um, you know, if you think 
your theater or an audience is going to love something like Grease, then they're probably going to love Leader of the Pack as well. You can find the soundtrack on YouTube, of course. It's all there. It doesn't take much to follow the story within it because it's really just about um, all of the songs that they co-wrote. So, yeah, um, not necessarily a major, major show in terms of the show itself, but for me, starting another community theater, starting at another community theater, that was very important for me. And it would be, like I said, a place that I will would revisit uh, for many, many years. And it's still going on here in Reading, Pennsylvania. Genesis Theater is still a thing. I think it started in the 70s, I want to say. Um, but yeah, there you go. Leader of the pack. I hope you enjoyed this return to uh, the true musical Monday. And we'll try to pick it up again somewhere down the road. Timeline Trivia Tuesday for July 2023, Part 2. Continuing our tour through anniversaries for the month of July, this time going back 40, 50, and 60 years ago. By the way, something that I missed last time around uh, to celebrate 20 years ago of July 2003. On July 19th, 2003, the Teen Titans animated show began. And that would run for five seasons with some movies. That's a pretty big deal considering that that cartoon version of the Teen Titans, they are still on the air more or less with Teen Titans Go. And that has had seven seasons so far. Okay, so back to comics. 40 years ago, July of 1983, we were right at the beginning of the era of Marvel miniseries, continuing with Cloak and Dagger, number one of four, by Bill Bill Mantlo, and the art team of Rick Leonardi and Terry Austin, co-created by Bill Mantlo and Ed Hannigan. There's that name again. The duo first appeared in Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man 64, at the end of 1981. And this miniseries was, uh, you know, kind of like a deeper exploration of their origin, while also dealing with drugs and, uh, uh, you know, the, the underside of New York City. We also had 40 years ago Daredevil 200 by Denny O'Neill and William Johnson on art, featuring Daredevil versus Bullseye, all under that John Byrne, Terry Austin cover, if you know which one I'm talking about. 40 years ago, we had Firestorm 17, the first appearance of Firehawk. This was written by Jerry Conway, with art by Pat Broderick, George Tusca, and Rodan Rodriguez. Lorraine Riley is Firehawk, and uh, she appeared in issue one of this second volume, and she gets caught up in Ronnie's adventures and sure enough becomes this new character, a character that I really liked. I liked her design. I liked her design that she got during the crisis, and whenever she shows up, she's always a welcome appearance. Uh, July of 1983 gave us JLA 219, or I should say Justice League of America 219, the first part of Crisis in the Thunderbolt Dimension. Roy Thomas, Jerry Conway, Chuck Patton, Romeo Tangle and company with amazing George Perez covers. This features Johnny Thunder of Earth-1 returning to cause trouble for the JLA and the JSA. 
leading to a major revelation about Black Canary. This is the story, the two-part story, that eventually retconned the notion that even though there was a Golden Age Black Canary on Earth 2, when she came over to Earth 1, she was supposed to be the same person. Well, it turns out, while she transferred over, she was dying, and she decided to put her memories into her daughter, who had been placed in limbo for many, many years because her daughter had this power, this sonic scream that nobody could could control. So she grew up in limbo in suspended animation, and when Black Canary of Earth 2 joined the Justice League of America on Earth 1, they did a little switcheroo, and the Black Canary of Earth 1 really is the daughter of the Earth 2 Black Canary. So that's where that retcon comes into play, and it would last up until the crisis. Uh, Post-crisis, they would keep that same legacy, but they would do away with all of the you know, trickery. Your question for 40 years ago, July of 1983, comes from another Marvel miniseries, Falcon Number 1 of 4, by Jim Owsley, who is better known as Christopher Priest, Vince Coletta on inks, Christy Scheel uh, on colors, and for issues 2 through 4, the artwork was done by Mark D. Bright and Mike Gustovich. And this was how the bright Christopher Priest collaboration started that would eventually lead them to Power Man and Iron Fist and also Quantum and Woody. If you go to mdbright.com, Mark details a lot of his uh, time at DC, at Marvel, at Milestone, at Acclaim. It's a great account of his uh, comic book uh, experience and his resume, and it's always great to see like a personal thing, right, from uh, from the creators themselves. There's a lot of highs, there's a lot of lows, uh, the learning curve that he had to do. Uh, in Falcon, Captain America makes an appearance, of course, uh, a Sentinel makes an appearance, Red Wing, the villain Electro. Your question, so Mark D. Bright drew issues two, three, and four, Who was the artist on the first issue of Falcon? By the way, I have to stop here 40 years ago, July of 1983, because the summer of 1983 is when my comic collecting goes full throttle. Uh, I've often talked about how I picked up comics, superhero comics, personally, myself. They weren't hand-me-downs or anything like that, starting in October of 1982, But with the summer of 1983, I went all in. I was no longer just picking up random comics here and there whenever I could. Starting in June and July of 1983, if I picked up a title, I was going to continue that title as long as possible or as long as I could get uh, my hands on money as, uh, you know, as a young kid. Um, This, let's see, I would be 10 years old, yeah. Starting in June and maybe even in May, uh, I was already reading Amethyst, Batman and the Outsiders, Captain Carrot, DC Comics Presents, Justice League of America, New Adventures of Superboy, New Teen Titans, Sergeant Rock, Superman, Sword of the Atom, Thing, Wonder Woman, and World's Finest Comics. And then in July, I would add these titles. So these are also the first issues of the titles that I started with. Action Comics 548, 
All-Star Squadron 26, which is right near the end of the Infinity Inc. storyline. Batman 364, which means I was reading Batman and the Outsiders before Batman. Daring New Adventures of Supergirl number 12, right before her new costume debuted. Detective Comics 531, Flash 326, probably because of the cover with Flash in handcuffs. Fury of Firestorm 17, just as I mentioned. Green Lantern 169, just before Len Wein and Dave Gibbons took over. Legion of Superheroes 304, much talked about on the Legion Project. And Marvel Team Up 134, featuring Jack of Hearts, which is probably why I like that character. And then as months go on, I'll add more and more. And as I said, this is really where my collection took off. So uh, happy happy 40 years of um, uh, not starting my comic reading habit, but certainly uh, feeding into it. All right, let's go 50 years ago. 50 years ago, July of 1973. I think I missed this last time in June. Strange Tales 169 was the first appearance of Brother Voodoo. By Len Wein, Gene Colan, Dan Atkins, although the wiki lists uh, Len Wein, John Romita Sr., Stanley, and Roy Thomas as the creator. All right, so July of 1973 gave us Shadow Number 1, the first DC issue, which would run for 12 issues by Denny O'Neill and Michael Kaluta. Uh, we had Falling in Love ending with issue 143, one of DC's romance titles. That began in 1955. We had a new Richie Rich title, Richie Rich and Jackie Jokers, number one, which would run for 48 issues all the way up to 1982. In July of 1973, that gave us Crazy Number One, the magazine from Marvel, an illustrated satire and humor magazine published from 1973 to 1983 for a total of 94 issues. There were two other crazy titles from Marvel, a seven-issue series that started in 1953, a humor book, and three issues in 1973, which were just reprints of stories from Not Brand Eck. Marv Wolfman edited the first 10 issues of Crazy from 1973 to 1975. He says that Stan Lee wanted it to be more like Mad or Cracked, but Marv wanted it to be more like Lampoon, and they decided to split the difference. This is also the magazine where you would get the first appearance of Obnoxio the Clown, in issue 63, created by Larry Hama and, I believe, Alan Kupperberg. 50 years ago, uh, July 73, we had Incredible Hulk 168. In a story by Steve Englehart and Herb Trimp, we would uh, get Betty Ross becoming the Harpy for the first time. Marvel Spotlight 12 by Gary Friedrich and, again, Herb Trimp, gave us Damon Hellstrom as the Son of Satan. He had already made his first appearance in Ghost Rider 1 last month, but now he is headlining as the Son of Satan for the first time. Your question for 50 years ago comes from Daredevil 105 by Steve Gerber and Don Heck and Jim Starlin. Daredevil meets Madame McEvil, who claims that he is in the thrall of Thanos. Now, she already had her first appearance as Madame McEvil in Iron Man 54 in 1972. She's telling Daredevil her origin, and in this issue, Daredevil 105, 
she takes on a new code name. What is that code name? We jump now to 60 years ago, July of 1963. Two giants from Marvel that get a lot of attention, so I'm not going to cover it much here. Avengers number one, X-Men number one, both out on the same week by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Sam Rosen on letters for both issues. I was half tempted to make a question on who were the inkers for each issue, but I passed on that. By the way, that would be Dick Ayers on Avengers and Paul Reinman on X-Men Interiors. Fantastic Four 19 gave us the first appearance of Rama Tut. Tales of Suspense 46 gave us the first appearance of the Crimson Dynamo. Adventure Comics 312 in a story entitled Super Sacrifice of the Legionnaires by Edmund Hamilton and John Fort. We get the resurrection of Lightning Lad thanks to Prodi's self-sacrifice. In Flash 139, we get the first appearance of the Reverse Flash. Aquaman 11, we get the first appearance of Mira by Jack Miller and Nick Carty. And your question comes from Green Lantern 23 in a, in a story entitled Threat of the Tattooed Man by Gardner Fox and Gil Kane. It was the first appearance of the Tattooed Man who was a sailor who turns to crime. He gets some chemicals that give him the ability to turn any of the tattoos on his body into real-life objects. So your question, and it's an evil one at that, not counting the cover or the title splash page, in story, what was the first tattoo that the tattooed man brings to life? Let's go to your answers. 40 years ago, who drew the first issue of the Falcon miniseries? That would be Mr. Paul Smith. A beautiful issue. Not that the Mark Bright issues aren't, aren't great as well, but that Paul Smith drawn issue was pretty good. 50 years ago, although she already had her first appearance as Madame McEvil, the character in Daredevil 105 takes on a new code name, her real code name of Moon Dragon. And 60 years ago, the first tattoo brought to life by the tattooed man against a security guard is a pair of boxing gloves. To be fair, that's a hard one. But I have to say, uh, if I if someone would have sent that in with, you know, with trying to say what is the first tattoo, you know, that's that's a fair question. Now, if they were like, OK, in tattooed man's third appearance, what was the third tattoo? No, that's where it gets stupid. But. The very first tattoo from the Tattooed Man? Yeah, that's a good bit of trivia. On the cover, the tattoo is a uh, miniaturized fighter jet. And on the title page, which is really just one of those Silver Age, um, almost like a, a prelude page, uh, he throws off a flaming pinwheel. But in story, it is a pair of boxing gloves. There you go, part two of Timeline Tuesday Comic History for July of uh, 2023. We will see you next month with more Timeline Trivia Tuesday. New Comics Wednesday and previews. That's right. This was a request from a few listener 
feedbacks, uh, a few suggestions. I've been meaning to do this for a while, but I was either playing catch up or I, other things got in the way. But yeah, uh, some, you know, a bunch of people said, why don't you try to cover some uh, preview recommendations in time for us to possibly add it to our order or to talk to our comic store instead of doing new comics. Wednesday recommendations, you know, by that time it might be too late for some people, throw out some recommendations in advance. So, you know, my quest, my brain then says, okay, how do I make it interesting? I do like doing New Comics Wednesday, um, but I certainly see the appeal of talking about these items in enough time for you to pre-order if that's the case. I don't necessarily want to repeat myself on a preview segment and a New Comics Wednesday segment. You know, it's kind of like the front and the back end. Um, so I was trying to think, okay, so New Comics Wednesday is mostly about new issue number ones, collections and graphic novels that might have that I might have missed at previews or that I want you to pay attention to. Definitely new story arcs. Um, so, you know, how do I make previews different than that? Now, there are things that I don't recommend in New Comics Wednesday. You know, I certainly don't try to recommend, like, issue number three of a title. But maybe I might have an observation about that when I'm doing previews. Or I might have larger thoughts on trends, variant covers, prices. Uh, or maybe there's just something that I'm like, I don't put on my wish list or my my order list but i also don't recommend later so you know we'll see how this goes we'll see how this goes so these are my recommendations from the july previews catalogs for books mostly shipping in september and if you are playing the home game you have the larger previews catalog that has a whole slew of publishers you have to then go to the dc catalog the Marvel catalog, and starting this month, the Image catalog. They used to do a magazine-type previews book um, for a number of years, but now they, since they are now going with Lunar Distribution, they have their own dedicated catalog, although the previews book that I got digitally also has Image, so I don't know if, there's gonna be, if they're going to be in both. So here are my recommendations, starting with DC Comics. Wonder Woman number one from 1987 is getting a facsimile edition. They already did this in 2020. Uh, this one is, I think it's $4.99. I didn't write it down. It might be $3.99. But what's different about this one is they're going to put in, I'm assuming, the original ads as well. Because in the blurb it says, you will get the full reading experience with period appropriate ads from the time. And this will be coming out at the end of August, uh, obviously in time for the new title, which is, you know, right there on the front cover of the DC catalog uh, by Tom King and Danielle Semper coming out in September. I mean, this is going to be a big deal. I know there's going to be a lot of eyes on this. I'm certainly looking forward to it. How is it going to sell? Are retailers going to take a chance? I mean, it's Wonder Woman, but it's Tom King. And if retailers are smart, they obviously know that a Tom King book sells well for them, including hardcovers and collections. And he just got a bunch of, you know, more Eisners. So this is kind of a no-brainer. 
From Image Comics, this is a total surprise. Junior Baker, The Righteous Faker, a new miniseries, one of five, which is a sequel to Butcher Baker, Righteous Maker. And this is by Joe Casey, this time around with art by a newcomer named Ryan Quackenbush. The original series had art by Mike Huddleston. And this story feels like it's kind of like a thematic sequel. It's dealing with family legacy. If you've never read Butcher Baker, Righteous Maker, it is bizarre and beautiful and fun. Um, it's one of those books that came out from Image at the time. I don't even remember. I didn't write down when it came out. But when you think of like Casanova and Cowboy Ninja Viking and maybe even to some degree proof like Butcher Break Baker, Righteous Maker fit in with that. It was this very creator-driven experience, and it's not for everybody, and it's over the top, but I loved it. Mike Huddleston is working with Jonathan Hickman on, on his Substack stuff, so I guess that's why he couldn't get the original artist, but I'm looking forward to that. Over at Marvel, this is the month that you can order the Romnibus, <laughs> the Rom Omnibus hardcover. It's not coming out until January, but if you got 125 bucks, you can get this collection. Uh, it'll collect up to issue 29. I don't know how hard it is to get ROM back issues, but if you're someone that likes Omnibus, I don't particularly care for that reading experience. Um, this might be a good thing for you, so then you don't have to like trek around in back issue bins or at conventions. I also saw in the Marvel catalog the Star Wars line of books like, you know, Star Wars, Darth Vader, Bounty Hunters, Dr. Aphra, and others. They're doing this crossover called Dark Droids, but I really like the image that they show. It's a series of connecting covers by Jose Maria Casanovas, and it'll be on a bunch of those books, and it's all of the droids, you know, from Star Wars. Um, I could only name C-3PO and R2, but there's a whole bunch of others. It feels like it's a Star Wars uh, trivia person's um, dream, right? So that's a pretty cool cover. Uh, let's see. We have from Ablaze, The Mighty Barbarians number 6, cover D by Fritz Cassis, is an homage cover to New Teen Titans number 1 by George Perez. I can't remember who pointed this out to me. Someone either tweeted or Facebook messaged or something. Um, maybe they emailed. I cannot remember who actually sent me this email. Uh, and I couldn't find it in any of my notes, so I apologize. So if you were the one who pointed it out to me, please let me know and I'll credit you later. But yeah, I love homage covers. Here's one for New Teen Titans number one. I'm definitely getting that. From Flesk Publications, we have Art of Arthur Adams. Soft cover or hard cover, 180 pages, $39.99 or $59.99. That's not a lot of pages. Uh, it's a retrospective spanning 40 years from breaking into the business to recent covers, accompanied by personal anecdotes and a historical essay revealing the artist's journey and never-before-seen art. So if you like Art Adams, here is a book that uh, I'm assuming he has, um, you know, a personal hand in. And we'll end with Maul Productions, Jetta, Tales of the Toshigawa, Last Chances, 1 of 4, 
a miniseries by Martheus Wade, Janet Wade, Kevin Williams for five dollars. Uh, you heard Martheus on, uh, I think it was a George Paris celebration episode that I did, and you certainly heard uh, Martheus and Janet, and I think Kevin. I, I don't know if Kevin was ever on CGS, but the other two definitely were on CGS episodes here and there. You can hear Martheus on his Wade's Worlds podcast, along with Janet and their son, and uh, Culture Trapping as well. Good to see that this title is in previews. It's a long time coming, and it actually got a spotlight as well in the catalog. So if you missed that, check it out. It's on page 396 of the previews. All right, so yeah, let me know. Let me know if that was something of value to you. Uh, I will try to drop it earlier in the month if I decided to do it for August. Um, I probably should just like hit record while I'm going through previews for myself because I usually do have thoughts, other thoughts, larger thoughts um, about different things, not just recommendations, but, you know, I see something and I'm like, oh, there's that person or why are they doing that? Or that reminds me of this, et cetera, et cetera. So I'll try to take more detailed notes for next time, but please, you know, let me know what you thought of, uh, me doing a preview segment. Let's go to your recommendations for this week, the week of July 19th, starting with IDW, Star Trek, Day of Blood, number one, for $5.99, by Christopher Cantwell, Colin Kelly, Jackson Lansing, uh, Ramon Rosanis, Malika Ward is your cover artist. This is the start of the Day of Blood crossover event between IDW's Star Trek series and Star Trek Defiant. So featuring Benjamin Sisko and the USS Theseus over in Star Trek, and Worf and a bunch of characters in Star Trek Defiant as they unite against the madman behind all of the god-killing that is going on in this new Star Trek title, a title that I've really been enjoying. By the way, there is a hardcover of the first six issues also this week entitled God Shock, and I don't know, that I don't follow how IDW does their collections, but for this series to get a hardcover seems like they really want to bring attention to this series. From Image, we have Lovesick Trade Paperback, $17.99 collecting the seven-issue series. That is the music that you heard at the start of this segment by Luana Vecchio. And the creator, Luana Vecchio, invites you to a digital underworld of blood and neon to explore the limits of consent, love, and idolatry in one of the most erotic and extreme stories in recent years. The artwork um, was something that drew me to some of the previews, so I waited until collection came out so I could, could so I could give that recommendation. Everything seems to be Oppenheimer these days. From Abrams, we have The Bomb, The Weapon That Changed the World, for $29.99, by Laurent Frederic Belli, uh, Didier, Didier Alcante and Dennis Rodier, an exhaustive and definitive work of nonfiction that details the stories of the unsung players as well as the remarkable men and women who were at the crux of the bomb's history and the events that followed. From Harper Alley, we have the Frontera graphic novel 
by Julio Anta and Jacoby Salcedo. This is both soft cover and hard cover, uh, $18.99 or $26.99. The blurb here, as long as he remembers to stay smart and keep his eyes open, Mateo knows that he can survive the trek across the Sonoran Desert that will take him from Mexico to the United States. That is, until he's caught by the Border Patrol only moments after sneaking across the fence in the dead of night. Escaping their clutches comes at a price, and lost in the desert without a guide or water, Mateo is ill-prepared for the unforgiving heat that is sure to arise come, sure to arrive come sunrise. With the odds stacked against him, his one chance at survival may be putting his trust in something, or rather, someone, that he isn't even sure exists. If you'd ask him if ghosts were real before he found himself face-to-face with one, Mateo wouldn't have even considered it. But now, confronted with the nearly undeniable presence of Guillermo, he's having second thoughts. As his journey stretches on, Mateo will have to decide exactly what and who he's willing to sacrifice to find home. And the writer is also the writer who did uh, the miniseries from Image Comics entitled Home that I enjoyed, so I wanted to give that a shout-out. From DC Comics, we have Tales of the Titans number one, one of four, $4.99 by Shannon and Dean Hale, art by Javier Rodriguez. This is an all-new miniseries of spotlight issues in the spirit of the beloved 1980s classic, Tales of the New Teen Titans, which was also a four-issue series focusing on the four new members of the New Teen Titans. As I mentioned, first up is the Alien Princess and Warrior Starfire. You got Javier Rodriguez on art, which is always a plus, and a cover homage by uh, Nicola Scott, uh, you know, riffing on the original cover, all four of the original covers for this miniseries by George Perez. Speaking of George, they, DC is releasing uh, the War of the Gods miniseries, calling them Special Editions. Wonder Woman War of the Gods Special Edition number one is out this week. That was also a four-issue series, $4.99. Chuck Letta on Twitter asked, why did he think, why did I think they were releasing this? Um, some of it could be just to celebrate George Perez. Some of it, it could be because of the new Wonder Woman title that's coming in September. And uh, I thought, oh, you know, there was that Lazarus Planet, uh, was it Revenge of the Gods miniseries? I think that's what it was called, which featured Wonder Woman and Shazam. Did it have any kind of connection to that? So that was the, I, I didn't read a release, so I really didn't have any idea why are they doing this other than... It's probably been a while. Now, I know that there's a trade. In fact, there might be more than one trade collection of that event. Um, because I think I have one that is entitled Wonder Woman War of the Gods. And then I think they also might have reprinted the miniseries when they were doing those Perez Wonder Woman trades. I'm not sure about that. So, um, yeah, there you go. If you haven't ever read that event, which is a little bit messy, they are putting them out in special editions. There you go, those are your recommendations for the week of July 19th. 
some things have been happening that might be related. We're in a race against the Nazis. So cool. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? I'm actually not sure. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. We've got one hope. What do I have to do? I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb. Catastrophic! Well, remember this day. Okay. Detonator charge. The world is not prepared. Just a giant blowout. How could you possibly know that? You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. Do you guys ever think about dying? <laughs> We're going to end this digest with a whole bunch of comic book news, uh, especially since uh, this week we are right in the middle of a new San Diego Comic-Con, a San Diego Comic-Con without the presence of Hollywood, which has to be a good thing. So there has been a number of comic book announcements that have come to the forefront, which is pretty amazing. I also have some news from the last few weeks. So this might be uh, a lengthy segment. Um, and I'm cheating a little bit because I'm recording this on the weekend of San Diego Comic-Con so that I could get a little more news as opposed to just doing up to Friday and then I would have to wait a week. So let's, let's start. I'm going to give you some news, maybe a little bit of commentary as well. Starting from Marvel, it, this was announced a little earlier in July or in the summer. There's a new Thunderbolts series spinning out of the recently completed Captain America Cold War event. This is going to see Bucky taking on the role of the Revolution, the sole keeper of a century's worth of covert information and secret files, which he intends to use to further his mission to take down the biggest threats in the Marvel Universe or die trying. Among those threats are the Red Skull, Kingpin, and even Doctor Doom himself. So the makeup is straight out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We have the Winter Soldier, Black Widow, White Widow, the Red Guardian, U.S. Agent, the Contessa, Sharon Carter, and thrown in a little bit of an odd measure here, Shang-Chi. And this is by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing, a creative team, a writing team that I I follow. I, I really enjoy what they're doing with Kang the Unconquered, with some of the preliminary Captain America stuff I read, uh, right through to IDW and Star Trek. Uh, yeah, I believe they call themselves the Hive Mind, but this uh, we're going to talk about them a little bit later as well. The artwork on this is by Geraldo Borges, and this will be out in December. If you want more White Widow, she's going to get her four -ish, own four-issue miniseries by Sarah Gailey and art by Alessandro Miracolo. Uh, this will be on sale in November featuring Yelena Belova. This is her first solo comic since the 2002 Max miniseries entitled Black Widow Pale Little Spider. Spider speaking of Spider... Spider-Man's getting another event entitled Gang War, 
This is a crossover in Amazing Spider-Man and Miles Morales, a street-level battle within New York after the apparent death of Tombstone. And all of the gangs are battling it out. And, of course, everyone else is caught in the crossfire. And then they're going to have a bunch of miniseries to tie in because that's what Marvel does, uh, very much like um, what DC is doing with uh, Knights of Terror. Uh, so we got Daredevil, we got a miniseries with Luke Cage, who I believe is currently the mayor of New York, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, and Spider-Woman, also getting a miniseries. Uh, this is going to start in November, and it did make me laugh, right? They're calling this Gang War, and DC had already announced a while ago that they're doing Gotham War. So, you know, Marvel likes to... Make, uh, copy things a lot, right down to making sure that they're, uh, you know, if you have, I, although I don't know why they're, you know, why do they call it gang war? Did they think it was going to be on the shelf before Gotham War? Wouldn't it be Batman Gotham War? I don't know. Maybe not. All right. Let's keep going here. Marvel is continuing to do their retro minis where they reunite a creative team back to a run, usually from the 90s that they were on. And now we're going to get Daredevil Black Armor by uh, D.G. Chichester. And the artwork is by Nitho Diaz. This is set during the Chichester run. Uh, the covers are going to be mar by Mark Bagley. This is, I guess, celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Fall from Grace storyline, which came out in June of 1993. This miniseries is arriving in November. It does make me wonder, where's Scott McDaniel? I know he's doing artwork, so why didn't they use him for this series? Or maybe he turned it down. Because that's probably where I first saw Scott McDaniel's artwork on the Fall From Grace storyline. So I'm moderately interested in this because I want to see the armor back in action, that Daredevil armor. So we'll see. Uh, if you haven't heard, there's a new Punisher that's going to be running around. His name is Joe Garrison a retired S.H.I.E.L.D. Black Ops agent. Uh, this is by David Peepos and art by Dave Wachter, who is currently on Planet of the Apes. And they say here, the man might be different, but the punishment remains the same. Peepos says, I wanted to introduce the, the Danny Ketch to Frank's Johnny Blaze. And this will be out in November. Finally, from Marvel, they're going to do a third timeless one-shot. Uh, this is going to focus on Moon Knight and Power Man, again by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing, with art by Juan Cabal and a cover by Kyle Nagu. And this is featuring future versions of these characters, or maybe they are the characters that we know, but in a future time. So let's see, we have uh, the Moon Knight un Unending, is a combination of God and Machine, sporting Iron Man tech, and steeped in the mystic history of Moon Knight. The second character, billed as the final living superhero, is our very own Power Man, Luke Cage. And he now wields the unstable powers of the Sentry, the Hulk, and the Iron Fist. In a future where all time and space is threatened by the ascension of an ancient evil, the Moon Knight Unending has risen, a nightmare born out of Stark Tech, the Eternal Machine, and the God of the Moon, and now all of Earth bows before his overwhelming power. 
but one man stands against Kalanchu's coming tide of chaos, Power Man, the Marvel Universe's final living superhero. Can the Marvel Universe ever truly be saved, featuring shocking glimpses into the next year of Marvel's stories? So on Twitter, uh, Shane, I, I posted something about this, and um, uh, Shane, not from CGS, but uh, uh, a listener who, who comments every now and then, I believe he's from uh, Northern Ireland, uh, says, did they ever follow up on the previous two timeless one-shots? The first one seemed to be setting up Marvel Man's entry into the universe and, a, and an event centered around him, and the second one seemed to be setting up an event and new villain who had stolen one second of time from Kang. And I agreed. That's, I wrote that on Twitter. I was like, these are really good one-shots for Marvel. You know, DC really does these kind of one-shots superbly well. If you go back to, like, DC Countdown and DC Rebirth and other one-shots that have been really good. Marvel's, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're okay, um, Marvel Legacy was pretty good, and the Timeless one-shots also have been good, but the potential feels like it's wasted. Like, where's the story that is supposed to spin out of it, as Shane mentioned? So now we're going to get another one, and who knows if they're really going to follow up on it. So I wish they would, because they are a draw, for sure. If I bounce around at other publishers, there was some news. Uh, of course, this isn't all-encompassing, but... Uh, like, for instance, Boom Studios teased that Tom King is going to do a book with Peter Gross, that's cool, about dogs, apparently. And Tom mentioned that early in his career, he was approached by Boom Studios, and now they finally get a chance to work together, so we'll get more information on that. From Dynamite, they're going to be doing a new Nightmare Before Christmas comic coming out in 2024. Uh, they've been doing some Disney villains comics like Scar and Maleficent. Uh, there's one on Hades and they look pretty good. They look pretty good if I'm being honest. Vault is doing a comic entitled Beyond Real uh, by Zach Kaplan and a whole bunch of different artists and this book follows the struggling artist June following a severe accident which leaves her boyfriend in a coma and causes her to experience bizarre visual phenomena. When she discovers that the world she considers reality may in fact be a computer simulation, she must set out on a perilous journey through metaphysical layers of the simulation to reach the true creator and save and save her love from death. This is going to be released in October, and apparently it might have some meta-commentary on comics creating as well, I think. From Fanagraphics, coming in 2024, fall of 2024... A groundbreaking Brazilian comics anthology edited by Rafael Grandpa and Hanaina de Luna. And this is going to be entitled Braba. 13 short stories created by 16 pioneering Brazilian cartoonists. And uh, the term Braba is a Brazilian slang derived from brava, meaning angry, and has been embraced as a symbol of something impressive and groundbreaking originating from Brazil's edgy youth culture. And they're going to put all this together in an anthology, so uh, I'll be looking forward to that. This was announced before San Diego Comic-Con. Flash Gordon will be uh, celebrating his 90th anniversary 
with Mad Cave Studios. They have licensed the rights for original comic books, reprints of older ones from King Fit Features. The line will include graphic novels from the publisher's middle grade imprint, Paper Cuts, as well as other projects. I started to read Flash Gordon strips, and I only got so far, but, it, you know, uh, they are amazing, of course. That's not a new thought. But I wanted to really immerse myself into the original strips, and I really should get back to that. From DC Comics, a whole bunch of news, including one that took everyone by surprise, Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong, the DC Universe versus the Monsterverse. Starting in October, a seven-issue crossover that sees the barriers between worlds break down and creatures of the Monsterverse will spill over into the DC Universe. Written by Brian Busolato, and you have uh, a bunch of artists, and you have a bunch of artists who are like, please, can I work on this? Please, please. Cover artists include Drew Johnson, that's an obvious choice, Jim Lee and Scott Williams, Raphael Albuquerque, Dan Mora, and others. Yeah, this one has a lot of people excited. A new series by Joe Casey and Dan McDade, entitled Neil Before Zod, coming out in 2024. Uh, you're going to get a sneak peek in Action Comics 1060 in December, and this story appears to be set on Krypton at a time before Jor-El and Lara detect Krypton's imminent destruction. Uh, we have Return of the Superman 30th Anniversary Special. Uh, I, I talked about, I think on the most recent DC All-Stars episode, how Action Comics feels like it's uh, this quiet reunion of all the Reign of Superman characters from when Superman died, because you got John Henry Irons, you got the clone Superboy, Eradicator shows up, Cyborg Superman shows up, and this is going to bring back all of the old team, Dan Jurgens, Louise Simonson, Jerry Ordway, Carl Kiesel, uh, Brett Breeding. I thought Tom Grummet's name was also attached to that, which would be amazing, because I haven't seen Tom Grummet artwork in a while. Uh, I mentioned uh, that we would be hearing more from Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. They are coming over to the DC Universe and writing a new Outsiders book, spinning out of Gotham War, featuring Batwoman and Luke Fox. And they are going to be, this is going to be a superhero archaeology comic unlocking the history of the DC Universe DC has had so many crises, but that is universes that have fallen apart. What could have survived? What could have fallen in the cracks? And if it sounds like planetary, yes, you would be correct. Even the cover art image feels like planetary, where you have Batwoman in the middle, you have Luke Cage all in white, uh, excuse me, Luke Fox all in white, and you have this other character who looks like the drummer. I think she's even holding drumsticks. So I haven't seen her seen her named yet, so I don't know if she's already established, but it's clear they're doing planetary within the DC universe. We have a new event coming out from the Titans universe entitled Beast World with Tom Taylor and Yvonne Hayes from, you know, Blackest Night and Aquaman and other comics. That has me uh, really stoked. 
So this is where millions of people are transformed into rampaging anthropomorphic animals, including, naturally, heroes and villains. Beast Boy Garfield Logan becomes the world's main hope of defeating the villain known as Necrostar, an alien creature similar but more dangerous than Starro. This is going to be shipped in November, I assume spinning out of the final issue of Tales of the Titans number 4 in October, which features Beast Boy. And the big draw to this is, wait till you see Garfield Logan uh, adapting the body of a Starro to help defeat this uh, villain. So, here we go. We're going to get um, the Titans' first big event. I don't know how much this is going to cross over into other titles, but uh, if they are to be the preeminent team of the DC Universe, then I guess it only makes sense that they're going to do an event. So those are your comic news. I do have a few non-comic news, but still comics-related. Speaking of Beast Boy, they're doing a bunch of shorts, animated shorts, coming out of a UK studio entitled Beast Boy Lone Wolf. And... Um, I'm assuming this is going to come out through Cartoon Network. So that's uh, keeping with the popularity of the character and with Teen Titans Go, although it's not set within the Teen Titans Go universe. So I don't know how much, you know, I don't know if that'll actually be followed through on, but it was uh, because I saw that bit of news before San Diego Comic-Con. Speaking of DC's animated slate, another set of uh, announcements that took people's heads right off their shoulders their next um, big animated movies that they announced. The first one will be an adaptation of Watchmen. Yes, that's right, Watchmen. Told in a way, uh, one of the reports or press releases I read said something like, but told in a new updated way. Something like that. Like a, a fresh new take on the story. Which is like, Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> and then the second big announcement for animation, Justice League Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yep, they're finally going to do a, an animated version of the Crisis story, which a lot of people have said over the years that that's the way to do it. It makes me think, okay, are they going to do this within the Tomorrow Universe? Because... There has been hints of something bigger coming. So I watched like the Legion of Superheroes animated movie and Brainiac hinted at something that possibly could be coming. And, um, you know, you have to imagine some of the events of that story might affect the crisis and get in again, a new and fresh way. I can't imagine if they're only doing like one movie, how much of the crisis are they going to be able to tell? It's going to be different. It's not going to be a direct adaptation of the Wolfman Perez event, I'm sure. Uh, if it's if it's set in the Tomorrow Universe, which I don't know, it's probably going to be the Tomorrow versus version, you know, which is fine. Um, because there's if it was a direct adaptation of the original 12-issue miniseries. First of all, it couldn't be done in just one movie. It would have to be two, if not three. But it also wouldn't make sense because those versions of the characters just don't exist anymore. So of course it's going to have to be updated. So we don't have any other information. Animation takes a long, 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 long time. 
I'm obviously going to um, be interested in this uh, and I'll follow some of the news probably closer than I do with other news. But yeah, that should be an interesting project. There you go. Let's wrap up this baby. Peter at the Daily Rios com if you want to send an email go follow the daily rios website and instagram follow me on twitter peter j rios i am still on that platform i have yet to cross over into any of the other platforms you know i'm sort of waiting until they show their true value uh, you can follow me on apple podcasts google play and spotify send me your promo send me your book club recommendations if you'd like to be a guest on the show Send me some audio talkback clips. Uh, This has been The Daily Rios, episode 627 for Saturday, July 22nd, 2023. Talk to you soon.